will you please welcome our friend and colleague, John Doyle. What a privilege it is to speak on this occasion. <laughs> if for no other reason than to uh, be able to drag out the club buggery suit. <laughs> this one last saw the light of day in 1997. <laughs> it still fits, oddly enough. It was during the bombing of Baghdad <laughs> that I reeled in shock, awe and disbelief when I saw Fox News coverage. Two immaculately uh, dressed presenters were genuinely excited by the pictures they were seeing. One of them shouted, I want to see the Moab, <laughs> the mother of all bombs. <laughs> Bring on the Moab. And I thought, it's come to this. <laughs> the news had degenerated into watching people wank at a snuff film. They were the new type of journalists. The fact is, rarely has there been a more important time for truth in journalism. I should begin by putting my journalistic credentials on the table. I have none. <laughs> As a radio presenter, I once managed to conduct quite a long interview with John Howard, who was then a shadow minister in the Downer Shadow Cabinet. <laughs> and covered a lot of ground without extracting any indication one way or the other that a leader cha leader leadership challenge was on. Whichever corner I tried to box him into, he deftly changed from a solid to a gas, only to reappear... <laughs> only to reappear as something that seemed solid on another part of the canvas. An old favourite of mine, the 2005 Andrew Ollie Lecture, delivered by John Doyle, reflecting on events of 2003 and the invasion of Iraq, shock and awe, the Moab. It's an incredible speech, a real favourite. It got flung around a bit in the early 2000s and when I was compiling Speakola 10 years later, it was one I thought, I'm going to put that one in. I always loved it. And I'm doubly lucky because today I get to interview John Doyle, the man who delivered it. I am back in 2022 and I do have the same sponsor that we had at the end of last year, the Podcast Reader. Issue 5 is out. It has the price of primacy on the cover, a picture of the Statue of Liberty draped in a Chinese flag. The big question of the age, perhaps, can the United States stop China becoming the dominant regional power? And that is an interview with Hugh White. Uh, the podcast reader is an excellent magazine, a repository of transcripts from your favourite long-form podcasts. If you've missed those episodes or if you want to read what you heard in some of your favourite chats, get the Podcast Reader Issue 5. You can find out more at podread.org. And if you want to give it a try without paying anything, just email them at hello at podread.org and mention Speakola and you'll get a free copy of the PDF for this edition. Email hello at podread.org. 
org and get yourself a taste. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the government yet. Speak Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello, everyone. I'm back. It's lovely to hear the theme again. It is Tony Wilson. You're on the Speak Ola podcast. And we're back in 2022. I've done my little surgeon around Tasmania with the kids and the two cars and the tent and the generosity of my mates Simon and Sasha who put me up in their front yard. First episode for 2022 and a great episode too, he says immodestly and prematurely. But there is a sense of confidence because I have done the interview with John Doyle and it's a beauty. I had a joyous period listening to it as I did the dishes tonight, and I went, yep, that stacks up. That's a lot of fun. For those who don't know the podcast, the basic idea is that we celebrate great speeches. We did it in 2020 and 2021 and have 29 episodes under our belts and have spoken to sports stars, musicians, artists, comedians, activists, politicians, anyone who gets up on their feet and strings some words together And our job is to chat to them about the speech and then play the speech at the end of the episode as the speech of the week. And it's been a great little format, had a lot of fun doing it. In fact, I have more fun doing this, I think, than really anything else in my professional life. So thank you to all of you who have tuned in and and built our growing audience. And a special thank you to the 50 or 60 now who have contributed financially And many of those are doing it on a monthly, ongoing basis. Get a little bit of income from the sponsors, but anyone who knows the economics of podcasts knows that that is not sheep stations. And the goal of any podcast is to build that listener base, that Patreon base who are willing to chip in a little, like a cup of coffee a month, and make the podcast more financially sustainable. And patreon.com forward slash speakola is a place you can do that. Had a wonderful $20 a month donation from Andrew Pritchard over the summer break. So generous. That's not the normal level of contribution. Many people giving 3 or $5 per month. But thank you so much, Andrew, for that level of support. You can also donate into the Speakola fold, the Tony Wilson fold. There is no other member of the Speakola team speakola.com forward slash donate or you can buy books from me i've got about 20 odd of them and they range from picture books like the cow tripped over the moon which was a, a bit of a hit in its day back in 2015 when it was published or you can get the 1989 great grand final book my sports book and i'm currently writing another sports book actually a biography of the great hawthorne coach alan jeans that's the current project doing the interviews for that But today, it's the interview for this, and what a pleasure it was. 
John Doyle was born in Lithgow in New South Wales alongside Marjorie Jackson, the Lithgow Flash. He would be Lithgow's most famous product. He has a beautiful, slow, laconic delivery. He trained as an English teacher. He worked as an English teacher. But in the 1980s, his interest in theatre took him to Sydney and and he began getting parts with the Sydney Theatre Company. And in the mid-80s, he cracked it for spots on the youth radio station 2JJ, soon to become the national youth broadcaster Triple J. And he found pure synchronicity when he was teamed up with his legendary sparring partner, H.G. Nelson, the great Greg Pickhaven, who for nearly 40 years has been in the chair beside John Doyle. H.G. Nelson to John Doyle's rampaging Roy Slaven, and together they have given us the most ridiculous, most irreverent, most listenable sports banter that Australia has ever produced. At the 2000 Olympics, their already cult following became a mainstream colossus when they put on a funny night-by-night Olympics-based comedy show called The Dream. Hello, boys. Battered Sav. Fatso the Snub-Nosed Wombat. They're expressions that Australian sports fans and even non-sports fans know to this day. And while Roy on HG was full steam ahead, John Doyle went off on his own and wrote some incredible... TV drama. He was the man who wrote the Changi miniseries and also the Marking Time series. He's a great screenwriter. And towards the end of the chat, he'll talk about his current screenwriting project. It sounds fantastic and it's related to an Australian war correspondent. Amazing story. So that's what we've got in front of us. As for the speech we're talking about, it's the Andrew Ollie Lecture. It'll be explained in a fair bit of detail by John Doyle, but basically it's a media lecture honours a great Australian journalist by the name of Andrew Ollie, and it's a media presenter speaking each year to journalists about the media and journalism. So that's the job that John Doyle was asked to do, and he did it brilliantly. Speakola. Well, I think 18-year-old me would be pretty excited at this moment because my first guest for 2022 is a long-standing hero of mine, not just from the 1980s when he delighted me with his rampaging Roy Slaven character on Triple J's morning show and later his own show, of course, with H.G. Nelson, but he's, he's absolutely entertained me over the years since with theatre uh, writing miniseries, writing books. Um, he's a legend. Thanks for coming on the show, John Doyle. Well, that's quite a quite a rap, Tony. Thank you very much. Uh, I do recall um, meeting you. I think Jenny Collins might have introduced you to me outside the club buggery prep room at uh, Gore Hill. You did. And so it is a great sentence to be able to say that we met outside the club buggery prep room and it's part of your legacy to the nation really that there was a club buggery prep room i was doing prep for race around the world at the time a young and very excited uh, documentary filmmaker Uh, but nowadays looking for great speeches and doing podcasts about them john and i believe your 2005 andrew ollie speech is a great speech Uh, well well i i i i i I, I have a problem with sleep 
Tony. It's it's plagued me all my life. I now have a, a sleep therapist, which has improved things greatly. But uh, the, back then, sometimes I wouldn't sleep for two or three nights before a job like that. And um, I sort of only remember it in a sort of dreamlike state that I was in. I know I was incredibly nervous about it because uh, I, I'm not a journalist and I was talking to journalists um, or the the thesis was the or the brief was to talk about journalism my uh, association with journalists had been quite minimal really greg and i had done a couple of jobs for the walkley awards and uh i do recall being a little shocked at the behavior of uh, journalists once they'd had a few um <laughs> fist fights weren't uncommon and uh uh, braying at the moon and uh, getting agitated and all of this. And uh, I, I realised that uh, journalism, if you're going to embrace journalism, it comes with an enormous personal cost because you're exposed to the darker side of the human experience. And uh, this takes a tremendous toll on some journalists who take to drink so the drinking culture in the world of certainly male journalists is not all that dissimilar to the culture in a rugby league football team and its association with uh, high-spirited behaviour under the influence. So I was, I was pretty nervous about it. I, I, I stumbled quite a bit, you know, made mistakes and... And sounded, I think, very nervous, which I was. What sort of what sort of speaking experience did you have coming into two thousand and five? Had you ever been the the school captain or anything like that? Had you had you regularly had to speak? Did you regularly have to get on your feet as a as a teenager and a adolescent? Yeah, look, I was I was, I was given jobs like MC, uh, I suppose, in school school functions, but uh, speaking off the cuff, I found incredibly threatening, very, very daunting, um, still do. But what, working in the radio, and especially, uh, I suppose, with Greg, has been that he, he gave me the confidence. Um, and, and once you uh, were able to build a performance mask, it was something you could hide behind. And uh, that, that enabled me to, uh, to uh, explore and uh, vent to views and ideas that uh, normally I, I, I wouldn't or wouldn't be capable of doing so. So, so to, to then um, uh, actually speak as myself without a mask, I, I found very, very daunting, I'd have to say. But it's, it's like many of those things. You're sort of glad you've done it, even though the experience was uh, troubling. <laughs> So, well, tell us about the Andrew Olley lecture. What is it? Who was Andrew Olley and uh, what's the brief? A a Andrew was a, a much-loved journalist who came from uh, Queensland. He'd had a troubled background and uh, found himself in the media. Uh, he uh, hosted Four Corners, a 7.30 report, and had a daily radio program or breakfast program I think it might have started about half past seven in the morning on uh, uh, Metropolitan ABC Radio 2BL. He uh, died of a brain tumour at a, quite a young age, and uh, there was such an outpouring of 
grief amongst uh, not only ABC, but certainly the listenership and viewership of the ABC, because his was such a reliable and benign presence on, on radio and television. So the station manager, Peter Wall, at the time, thought it would be a good idea to maintain some sort of legacy by organising a uh, an annual uh, Andrew Ollie Media Lecture. So I was uh, invited to deliver the 10th and the 10th of, of these. And they, they would get, you know, various people from the media. I think Kerry Stokes spoke. Uh, Senator Helen Coonan, who was the communications minister, spoke. Ayana Rent spoke. Quite, quite a few luminaries. Um, one of the Murdoch kids, I think, spoke. Might have been Lachlan spoke. So, so it uh, and then you had to wear a uh, you know a bow tie and present yourself reasonably well, and it was filmed and broadcast on uh, ABC Television the following night, quite late. So, so the brief was to uh, talk about the media and journalism. Uh, and that was it. You were allowed to do whatever you wished. So, uh, having been a sort of student, well, I don't know about a student of the media, but certainly interested in the media, I was, uh, I didn't have much trouble coming up with material. Uh, that, that wasn't a, a, a problem at all, because uh, there's much about the media, then as now, that causes me great concern. It's, uh, well, it's now, it's, it's, it's ideologically driven from both sides, really. Um, I, I do sometimes when I'm in the bush and have access to Sky, I, I do enjoy watching Sky After Dark, or I did when, you know, Peter was joined by Alan and then Paul Murray and these people, and uh, they were all singing from the exactly the same hymn sheet, especially when uh, Turnbull became Prime Minister. They they attacked their own uh, with such a ferocity. They just hated his guts. And so every night, it seemed, there were these diatribes as to what a untrustworthy, unreliable figure Turnbull was, and they had to get rid of him as soon as possible. Uh, and so so there's that on, on one hand. And on the other hand, I, I, the shows that give me the most pleasure, I suppose. I, I've become a great student of MSNBC and uh, I enjoy uh, Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell and people of this ilk who are singing from a hymn sheet from the other side of the house, so to speak. So I, I think I find more comfort there than I do in Sky. It seems to me it's a little bit closer to reality than anything Sky gives us. So if I was to deliver them the lecture today, I would probably dwell on that. The great divide between left and right, which is, uh, you know, happening everywhere. But I couldn't anticipate back in 2005 the influence of social media it's something I know nothing about, Tony. I, I don't do Facebook. I don't do Instagram. I don't do any of these social platforms. So all I see is the result of these things. Mm. And it's not good. Looking at the so-called 
freedom marches we have at the moment and the freedom marches that are happening in Canada and in the United States where very the very institutions are being attacked by essentially mad people who now have a sort of critical mass and that's what social media has delivered to them. It's, it's allowed these separate, often weird, violent, odd people, it's given them a, a common voice um, and it's given them numbers. And this is of great concern, I think, in the, oh, the fracturing of our society. It's really interesting to read the speech and to listen to the speech now because of the absence of social media. It's right on the cusp. Social media is coming in 2005 very shortly, but it, in some ways the speech belongs to the old world, although what you are foreseeing is the the growing sensationalism of news, and, and that's the first paragraph, actually. You, you mention uh, your opening sentence is a beauty. It was, it was during the bombing of Baghdad that I reeled in shock, awe, and disbelief when I saw Fox News coverage. And you're foreshadowing the Moab, of course, there, the Moab. Yes, the mother of all bombs. That's what they were calling for. Uh, I think I said something to the effect that it was like watching people wank at a snuff film. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a beautiful so, line. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, set the tone pretty early on, Tony. Uh, and... and- and then I, I read somewhere that, that it's really your specialty is to simultaneously be ruthless and affectionate. And I, I think there is a sense of that in the speech. I mean, it's you go so hard in that paragraph one. I mean, that expression is a slap across the face. But there is also a humour contained within it. And people know the rampaging Roy character, but I guess they don't know what John Doyle is necessarily going to do in this in this situation. No, no. Well, well I, I, I suppose I, I, I wanted to... Uh... Have them sit up and listen. <laughs> so, uh, so that was a way of, uh, of uh, I suppose, setting, setting, setting the tone. And then, John, you do what I think a lot of people would do in the situation. When you said there was a, a, a little element of insecurity that you weren't a journalist and you were speaking to journalists about journalism, you've got to put it on the table and, uh, and state your lack of journalistic credentials. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you've got to make it clear. I mean, I'm just standing there pretending I'm a bloody expert, and of course I'm not. All, all I am is someone who consumes media, uh, and these are my observations of the pitfalls and problems associated with the media. I gather with the preparation for the speech, did you did you went back through old speeches because you you dedicate a section of the speech to that? Do you do you remember how you wrote it or, or what the process was? Well, well, to begin with, with this, I, I did need to see what what others have said because the Andrew Wally media lecture didn't talk to me at all. I, was, I never watched it. I don't know why. It just didn't bob up on my uh, on my. You know, I'd be much more interested in watching you know the late night late night game show with hot dogs or whoever it was, because um, I, I I I'm a student of terrible programs. I, I used to love. Uh, when digital television first started, uh, there was a dedicated Christian channel, and uh, I used to love watching um, televangelists. And they've always been a favourite of mine. The, the, the skills, the techniques, you know, the nonsense. 
Anyway, so I looked at a couple of videos of the more recent Andrew Ollie media lectures to see what people were going on about. So I felt the need to respond to, uh, well, I think Lachlan was talking about the need for, uh, you know, diversity and what have you and how it is a business. The media is a business. Yeah, sure. Um, and you teed uh, off there. You weren't afraid of of ever having to apply to Lachlan for a job. You went bang on Lachlan's speech. <laughs> well, well, yeah, well, well you've, got to, you've got to call it as it is. And I, I, I couldn't imagine. Well, I think the, the Australian took umbrage at the speech. And, uh, it was the first time I've ever appeared in an editorial in the Australian. Um, and I, I took that as a badge of honour, to be frank. So, yes. And, and uh, you know, Yana talked about how difficult it is, you know, doing quality journalism in a commercial circumstance. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, yeah, good. And, uh, uh, look, I wasn't there to be nice, Tony. I was there to, but he put a rocket up him. <laughs> and and do you, is that scary? Were you there like, oh, I'm going to give this and there will be a bit of fallout? Do you think... Do you think a, a no, lecture? No, 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 no. There was no, no fear at all. There was just nervousness of performance. I was just worried I was going to get tongue tied or stutter or you know cough or it, it was the the performance of it that worried me. The, the material I was sort of reasonably reasonably happy with. With the writing of it, um, the old English teacher in you, were you, are you sort of, you know that this sort of thing is not going to be extemporaneously delivered. I guess you, you know that you want the words to be perfect. Is, is, was, is that more your style with something like this? Uh, yes, yes. I did spend a fair bit of time on what I'd call polish to uh, remove any waste words, words that don't belong or words that are just uh, puff uh, which which is what what happens because you know you've got to uh, I don't know how what the duration was it might be thirty minutes or so thirty five minutes and so you're worried that you're not going to have enough material so you you begin or I do at least it's it's massively overwritten so I, I've got about you know fifty minutes worth of stuff there but then then you've got to weed out what isn't necessary and sure each 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 paragraph has a particular focus. So, so that's that's generally speaking how I work. Um, the same too with uh, with uh, you know if I'm writing a TV drama, um, it'll be massively overwritten and and because it's much easier to to chisel something down to give something shape rather than need to puff something up if, it, if there's not enough material there. I'm I'm always concerned. I always want to have more material that I need so that I can make choices and and the jokes as well they're so carefully written i mean i I loved your description of interviewing john howard and and your i guess you were pouring fun on yourself for not being a particularly skilled uh breaker of stories and 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 you wrote um whichever corner i tried to box him into he definitely he deftly changed from a solid to a gas only to reappear as a solid on another part of the canvas with me clumsily smoting the air i mean that's that's the writer in you that's the english teacher isn't it that that really just loves i suppose it is but there's an element of of truth to that um he he just could outfox me so easily. I knew I could never be a serious uh, a serious journalist. I, I I could never be sort of rude enough. I don't think Tony to to actually say no. We'll stop. No, that's that's nonsense. Uh, let's let's return to the question, please. So, you know. So I'm, I'm not 
I'm not uh, skilled enough uh, with that. And the same with Tim Fisher, uh, around the same time. Um, I interviewed Tim Fisher an hour before he resigned. Um, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and, and honestly, he, he gave no indication that, you know, it was all steady as she goes and everything's great. And an hour later, I'm in the car on the way home and I hear on the news that he's resigned. And so the interview I'd just done was completely obsolete and out of, you know, before it got to air. Uh, it's amazing. It's very funny. Um, you mentioned earlier the journalist and booze and that that was a little bit of ammo for you because you had attended the Walkleys with, uh, with Greg um, and doing mm. an act, I presume. What was your job at the Walkleys? What did they used to get you to do? Oh, I think we, we, we presented some, some award. I don't know what it was for. I can't recall. Uh, but we were one of a number of presenters who were uh, dishing, dishing out the loot, so to speak. Um, so uh, I think we were on sort of uh, towards the late in the night. Um, so as soon as the award was presented, I got out there and got out of there as quickly as I possibly bloody well could because it was really starting to get just a little bit uh, raucous. Not as bad as, say, a radio awards night, the Rawards. <laughs> that, that is really a difficult night. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone. Greg and I hosted it a couple of years ago. Never again. It was like... Mayhem. Mayhem, yes. Absolute mayhem. I remember Stephen Maine got in a fight at the Walkleys. That that made the news. But are you? Oh saying, yes, it did. Yes, it that's right. With Steve Price, but I, I can't remember. Is, are you saying that it, that's not the only fight that's ever happened at the Walkleys? That they swing, oh, e they no, swing each no, year. No, no, the impression I got is that that fights were as common as yeah, as nearly as I can tell. It's, it was unusual to have a Walkleys where where there wasn't an outbreak. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. I mean, I might be wrong, but that's just the impression I got. <laughs> and you, you gave a nice tribute in the speech to Andrew Wally. So you were obviously uh, someone who knew him quite well, or you, you caught up with him around the ABC. Yeah, look, because I, 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 I was doing the afternoon program in those days uh, when I knew Andrew and was seeing him regularly. So I'd always see him when he was getting off air in the morning. You know, he was always happy to past the time, yeah, and sometimes I'd see him, uh, as I might have made mention of, sometimes I'd see him at the tennis, um, at the New South Wales Open, sometimes I'd see him there, but uh, but uh, we, we never mixed uh, socially at all, it, it was always in passing, but but he was always, uh, he was always very generous uh, towards me, uh, he, he sometimes listened to the program and and gave me, you know, very useful feedback, which which was very very kind of him, because he had a lot more experience than I. Well, well, that's a that's a really nice part of the speech, and you talk about symmetry. But I guess then you talk about the excesses of two thousand and five media, and one thing that you point out is opinion, the rise of opinion, and really, yeah, this it's like at the five percent mark to where we are now. I mean, you've you've made a living satirizing sports. Journalists, and I remember in the eighties, what you'd be satirising is match reports. But now, you know, you can barely get a match report. All all you get is opinion from from sports journalists. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my favourite sports journalist at the moment is uh, Hamish um, Hamish McLaughlin on Seven, whom I saw just a couple of nights back. Interviewing uh, a young, a young, uh, might have been a half pipe person or something, and 
she just won a medal, and this is most unusual for an Australian to win a medal in the um, Winter Olympics. Anyway, Hamish uh, uh, engages with her and he looks at her and he says, you've just won a medal. Take us through it. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the the sort of stuff that got you into this life? Did you just delight in those moments when you first saw them back in rugby league and union in the 70s and 80s? Well, my my, uh, my uh, fondness for um, for sports coverage, I think, came from the back pages of the Daily Telegraph, yeah, newspapers, because that's where you'd get, uh, you know, that's where all the cliches came from. You know, someone cut a swathe through them. You know, someone with a bat. Um, it's filled with uh, with cliches. So so uh, these just became embedded. Uh, in in uh, in our speech, so when uh, when uh, I first started with Greg, and he lobbed a question at me. I, I had all this enormous resource to fall back upon, you know, the taking it, you know, one ball at a time, one game at a time, one season at a time, one life at a time. <laughs> <laughs> with some of the, you had to fill three and four hour shows, and I remember that it was Roy would typically embark on very long and fantastical stories of, of things that had happened in his past. And to what extent, you know, you're such a careful writer on a speech like this. Did you used to go in with a page and a half of fantasy that you'd constructed of what this character had done? Was, was that ever written word for word or, or did you latch no. on to your ability to just talk? The, the, the latter, Tony. Uh, we always felt that rehearsal was death, uh, Greg and I, and still do. We, we start a new season, I think, around the 3rd of March this year, and we, we won't see each other, we won't talk to each other, we'll meet an hour before the program and take it from there. No, for some reason or other, um, as I made mention of earlier, working with Greg... Um, uh, unlocks something, gives me the the confidence to trawl imagination in a way that under normal circumstances I couldn't possibly do. But the other thing that's needed for, for the imagination to be triggered in the right way is that the red light's got to be on. You've got to know that there's a listenership and, and it's best live. If we pre-record something, it, it lacks life. It's got to be live. So you've got to actually be on the tightrope uh, for it to work. Have you got a favourite tightrope moment in, in all these years, one where you really were sailing close to the wind and the switchboard was lighting up or where things had gone wrong? Um, is, is there a story you like to tell about the risks of live light radio? Look, we've, we've, we've been very lucky. Uh, th- there was a suggestion at one stage that a, a former cricketer, Called Paul Sheehan was was going to uh, to sue us. Now, I used to write a uh, something called "This Is the South Coast News," and I'm Paul Murphy, which Paul Murphy used to record for us each week. And uh, in this uh, series, um, I had every former sports person in Australia living in the one town, and. Uh, 
Paul Sheehan in the South Coast News, the former cricketer, according to the news, was found walking through a primary school without trousers. Now, he got in touch with the ABC and was uh, outraged because I think he might have been a principal of a uh, private high school. I didn't know that. So, uh, <clears throat> once we'd explained the, um, you know, the MacGuffin of the program that it's everyone knows it's completely fictitious, etc., 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 he uh, he was uh, he he accepted that mercifully and it didn't go any further. And there was another time when a, a footballer called King Wally Lewis had heard in the dressing room that we had made fun of his family. And this wasn't true at all. Um, so after a phone call from Wally, we were able to uh, satisfy him that uh, what he'd been reported to him wasn't true at all. But uh, I, I'm not directly answering your question because I, I was having to pad here, hoping that something would drop. Um, but 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 nothing has dropped because we've uh, look. I think I think the most difficult day, and this doesn't answer your question at all either. The, the most difficult program we had to do was, um, as you say, we were doing four hours a uh, a week in those days. And uh, we went to London to cover Wimbledon. This was a bit of a gift from uh, Triple J because they weren't really paying as much at all. And this was a way of compensating us, I expect. They didn't say as much, but it seemed to me that that was probably it. So to do that, we flew out. And once we arrived, we then had to record in live time from the UK, our weekend show, four hours. And then we had to turn around and pre-record the four hours for the following week. So I've got a photograph of Greg and I at the end of that eight-hour stretch. And we were utterly exhausted. I, 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 I don't think the quality of the second program <laughs> had much going for it, to be honest. But, uh, but, but that was a, a, a really challenging time. But what it did show us, though, that, uh, was that uh, there was never a shortage of material. There's always stuff to talk about. And as we often say, the, the more long-winded we can be, the, the, the better it is. So, so Greg uh, was always very generous in uh, cutting me as much slack as I liked to be able to follow any particular adventure that I was imagining and so I could find myself in a um, in, in a state that I imagine someone like uh, Garrison Keelor finds himself in, in the Prairie Home Companion news from Lake Wobegon, uh, where he has constructed this whole town and family connections, etc., etc., which is extraordinarily interesting to listen to because you know it's being invented and made up on the spot and um, I, I only discovered him uh, maybe about 10 years ago and I was astonished by by, by what I heard I did, this has been going for 30 or 40 years I'd never heard it yeah. but uh, but it did remind me of when watching and listening to him of the the sort of state that Greg and I could sometimes get into ourselves where you're just 
literally knitting together a, a, a story, an adventure off the cuff. And, and, and if it does end up nicely, you know, with a nice bow tie at the end of it, and it has a, uh, it has a logic through it, then there's nothing, there's no greater feeling. Oh, and, and but, but, but nothing, nothing we do is, is written apart from the, uh, this is the South Coast News and I'm Paul Murphy and the various spoof ads that we don't do anymore because it wore us out after we'd done a thousand. <laughs> yep. Well, if, if people enjoy that world building, the one I've loved over the last two years is um, Damien Callanan's Bodgy Creek Community Podcast, which is a invented town down in the Caxton Valley in Victoria. And it, it, all those quirks of country life, I think, are beautifully realised in that in, in a very ludicrous world as well. So check that one out. He's been a guest on I our... I will. That's uh, good advice. He's been Thank a guest you. on our podcast as well. Um, John, the, the, what about the cadence? Um, you used it in the speech as John, and Rampaging Roy has the cadence as well. Have you always had the... The lovely sing-song, the the very, I guess, distinctive sound that you've got in this interview as well. I mean, is that is that something you found early? Um, is it natural, or is it a a thing you've worked up? Oh, look, I think it's something you've got to practice, and I've been doing it a long time now, Tony. So that I don't I don't really think about it anymore. Um, I, I, I I'm lucky, I suppose, that 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 somehow um, sentences can come together reasonably reasonably well uh, I, I don't analyze it I don't think it's helpful to do so <laughs> I, I just uh, get into a zone where um, you know the the commas and the semicolons seem to uh, end up in the in a, a reasonable spot and one another point of the speech I thought was really well made um, and it strikes me as well one of the reasons I've got the podcast is that so much of media feels like it's a waste you know that there are all these people out there that are incredible but if they're not on the publicity trail no one contacts them and no one speaks to them you know so I'm trying to organize an interview with a woman who knows a lot about Ho Chi Minh and she's going to talk about the speeches of Ho Chi Minh and 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 you talk about astrophysicists that you've spoken to on the afternoon show and the fact that they blew you away with their descriptions of string theory and almost spiritual feeling um that that that's as true now as in 2005 isn't it that the, the so much of the media is just wasted yeah yeah, 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 yes, it is. It is. I, I, I don't listen to uh, commercial radio much anymore. I, I used to be a, a student of right-wing media, uh, radio people, much in the manner of Ray Hadley and Alan Jones, people who probably people in Melbourne would never have heard of. Um, but Melbourne would have its own. Uh, Steve, what's his name? Steve Price was down here. Steve Price. There's an example for you. Yeah. I, I, I used to enjoy listening to that, but I don't. I don't anymore, and uh, I, I could be critical if pushed about um, ABC Metropolitan Radio these days as well. Uh, there's a lot of you know, give us a call, lying on talkback, you know, and uh, finishing any interview or any point, you can simply finish it by saying, "Well, there you go." <laughs> Hey, uh, Graham, what's the, what's the weather today? We're going to have bloody, bloody, and 24 degrees. Oh, well, there you go. There you go used to mean 
proves my point. Yeah. Now it isn't. It's just it's noise. Now I think uh, there's a linguistic term for it. I think it might be called phatic communion. Uh, that is, it's just noise. It has it has no meaning. Uh, with there you go. Uh, I blame Ian McNamara, who began it, who cannot string three sentences together without there you go being <laughs> one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do. You give it to the radio presenters with just a magnificent paragraph, which people should listen to of 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 the tropes and the way that they fill their shows and uh, and that. That's yeah, well, what, that hasn't that hasn't changed. I, I mean, I, mean I, I don't listen to Breakfast Cruise anymore. I never did really. But you know, you know, Marty and Andy and whoever, or you know, wake up to the Moon Man. It's, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm never going to watch it or listen to any of, any of that sort of thing. But I assume they're still the same. Zany would be the word. Zany. And uh, a fair bit of swearing. That, that's FM. FM, you get a bit of swearing. But but it, it hasn't really changed at all. And it still drives me nuts. The, as I think the point I make is that because with, with the telephone, it's sort of what we're doing now, that you can access some of the great minds of the world without much difficulty at all. Why not access them rather than throwing the lines open and say, you know, um, what's what's the, uh, I don't know, you've got to you've got to find a hook for every show, you know, what's yeah. the what's the biggest dog you've seen? Give us a call, <laughs> you know. I saw this dog was real big. Yeah, how big was it? Oh, there you go. You know, it's just nonsense, yeah. nonsense. But uh, but I suppose it's just a, a companion for the lonely. Absolutely, that's its function. That's its function. It's not. It's not meant to elucidate or uplift or inform or educate. It's just company for the lonely. John, you um, you you got it wrong. I think on one point, you were right about it being the age of inf- information, and that's been by a factor of a thousand since you delivered the speech. But you wrote, "The future belongs to bloggers," and I think the blog is just the the one thing that has passed us by since 2005 yeah facebook took the blog away from us it, it, it did it has denied us a blog um uh, that and the podcast but but i think the podcast generally speaking apart from joe rogan which i haven't heard the, the podcast is a great thing I, I i do enjoy uh dipping into podcasts i think that's fantastic which ones do you check out john have you got well a I, I i enjoyed uh russia are you listening yeah so so uh, so that was that was good. Um, I enjoyed listening to the conversations podcast. Conversations sometimes is is, a, is just fantastic. This is with uh, your friend Richard and Sarah Kolosky. No, they do a great job. It's it's a really beautifully researched, thorough, careful, interesting, uplifting, generally speaking, podcast. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, I should start listening to it live. But uh, but uh, but I don't. And your episode of that is is just great as well. That that relates to your book that, uh, that you released called Blessed. The, yes, it was about one year of your life as a fifteen year old. It's it's a really fantastic chat that you had with Richard. I loved it. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, I, I spoke to Sarah. Oh, did you? Okay, Sarah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Sarah was lovely. But um, yes, Blessed was a uh, a lockdown job. Uh, the first year, God, we've lost two years, just disappeared. 
but uh, the, the the first year of lockdown, the, the COVID lockdown, I, I spent writing writing last year. So yeah, great joy to do. It was lovely visiting 1967 again. Uh, mercifully, all of the characters uh, I describe in there, my classmates, to a person, have got in touch and said how much they enjoyed it and they weren't offended at all, and it took them back to a. Uh, a more innocent time that they all enjoyed. And, and why did you choose 1967? You say this in the podcast. But... Uh, look, I chose 1967 because we were, f- we were 15. You're on the just on the verge of adulthood. And uh, certainly in Lithgow, it was when pop from England and the United States, we felt that we were engaged in something happening in the world. We felt that, that that the world would join the world because for many of us, it was the first time we got television. And and you mentioned in the speech, you talk about your early consumption of media. I had a big laugh at your memory of cigarette ads on radio. But, um, mm. but generally, you were a voracious consumer of American culture and, and, and mass media. Yes, yeah, yeah. I watched a lot of television when we got it. Prior to that, I'd listen to a radio every every night, every day. Uh, I, I still have my radio from 1967, and it still works. Prior to that, I had a crystal set, which I attached to the iron frame of my bed, and I could listen to stuff from all over the world. It was uh, an amazing, an amazing thing. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've always been a, a, a student of, of the media. Um it sort of wears me down a little bit now because of the uh, the number of shows that I, I, I blame David Lyle in a way. I was a good friend. I, I liked David a lot. We left he, he left us a few years back, uh, but he was um, uh, an executive at Channel Nine for many years before uh, joining Fox, I think, in the United States. And uh, he was the pioneer of what you'd call unscripted drama. And now unscripted drama dominates television. We can't wait for tonight's episode of Married at First Sight. I think it might be the first or second uh, commitment ceremony. (laughs) Um. (laughs) So what was David Lyle's um, pioneering idea? Which one? Because I always think of myself and Race Around the World as as an yep. early attempt at having reality television. But the mistake they made is they still wanted us to create something artistic. They wanted us to make a story, whereas nowadays we would have been filmed making our stories and all the drama would have been in how hard those trips around the world were. Uh, but yeah. what was David Lyle's um, pioneering idea? The the, the sort of shows that um, I think go back to David's influence Let's take a show like uh, oh, Wheeler Dealers. Yeah. Oh, okay, Wheeler Dealers. So you'd get two characters together. One's a mechanic, one's a car salesman. You know, one buys a car that's a bit bugger, the mechanic fixes it up, and then you sell it. There's your show. Yeah. Um, now, to emerge out of that, um, a kind of interesting mechanic called Ed China. And uh, if you type Google Ed China's gloves, um, you'll find, you know, just specifically what sort of gloves Ed works with and what other precautions Ed takes in being a mechanic. So there's there's one show. And (laughs) another might be um, Overhaulin'. 
Now, there's a show, and this is pure Lyle. Okay, you get a bloke who has who has uh, an old car that he's been wanting to do up for a hell of a long time. Uh, let's say it's your, let's say Tony, your father had a uh, Rover 2000 circa 1967 that he's kept in the garage all these years and has always wanted to fix up but has never had the wherewithal and lost interest and it's gone beyond him. Well, you phone the overhauling mob and uh, they'll come in and they'll take the car and then they'll phone your father pretending they're the police and say look your father your, your car's been stolen but we're pretty sure we're onto it and we'll be able to get it back to you asap then they've got a week to overhaul it and so they call in uh i think his name might be chip Foos. now <laughs> chip chip is going to really do some great things to this car so they strip it they take every panel apart they replace everything they put a new motor in it they put new seats new carpets new stereo new everything and it's returned to your dad who uh you know they take the blindfold off his face and they say we've got your car now and he said no that's not my car it is have a close look He and he's blown away. There's your show. Well, that's pure Lyle. <laughs> pure Lyle. I'll apply that to every time I see pimp my ride, John. I'll know that that's oh, pimp my that, ride. That, that's that, that that's Lyle. Been, that would have been Lyle. You definitely. Yeah. <laughs> did he yeah, go yeah, to? Yeah. Did he? Did he take it to America? Was he? Uh, was he? Did he start yes. here and then go there? Yes. 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 That, that's where he spent the last. Uh, he left Channel Nine. I want to say early nineties, and spent the next fifteen years working in. Uh, New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, and London. Uh, he would trawl the world looking for formats and uh, make programs out of them. There's a unscripted drama. He hated writers. He thought that was a waste of time. So we got on very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a great defence of writers and creative content and the arts in in the speech and the abc as well i guess it was going out on the abc there was maybe a temptation to give the abc a pat on the back do you still feel as fondly about the abc in 2022 as you did yeah yeah i do i i I do i'm a little cynical as to the reasons why the uh the coalition might have bumped up the uh the funding for the abc over the next three years which is really good but we've noticed uh, over the years just how challenged it's become. I think AM is now 25, 28 minutes. PM is half an hour. These used to be hour programs. So so the, the, the resources are, are really stretched for their news gatherers and these shows. There hasn't been... Uh, all that much drama, really, and a lot of it is bought off the shelves. And th- there are programs that I think the ABC should never be making and should never have made. I don't know how many episodes they made of uh, Escape from the City, which was based on Escape to the Country, the uh, UK program. I don't know how many of those they made, but uh, exactly the same format. You know, you've got to guess how much it's worth. You know, 400,000 close, 420. I mean, it's just nonsense. Um, That should never have been made. And that bloody, you know, I like Paul McDermott a lot, but the quiz show he had, I found 
just utterly unwatchable, as unwatchable as as uh, what deal or no deal. Yeah, that that deal I think was the most mindless program I think I'd ever seen. I watched one episode and that was it. You know, never again. No, it, it's it's cheap content, isn't it? For a, for an underfunded national broadcaster, where they don't want to make the big ambitious six parters, they want to make. 31 episodes of the Einstein Factor, which I happened to be on through <laughs> the early 2000s. Oh, okay, yes. But it, yeah. but, it, but it is that sort of a show, isn't it? It's cheap and disposable and, and, and shouldn't yeah. be the ABC's focus. No, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. But anyway, yeah. But uh, but I don't... I, 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 if someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to run the ABC, I'd run a million miles away. I'm much happier, you know, sitting up in the tree with a rifle. Um. The, the You had to round out the speech and, and you went with, I guess September 11 was uh, uh, such an event. Even in 2005, it felt very much like the world was still embroiled in what had happened on in 2001 and, and we'd had the invasion of Iraq and the Iraq war dragging on and... And we probably went far off the mission accomplished, George Bush on the aircraft carrier. Was, these were the sorts of images that were dominating. So you went back to September 11 as, as your round out. Yes. Yes, I did. And we're still living with this, of course. Uh, and and what, I'm, what I'm working on now, Tony, is a um, television series uh, about a journalist called Wilfred Burchett, who... Um, to begin with, uh, during the Depression, got work as a child cutting cane in Queensland. While he was cutting cane at night, he taught himself Italian, French and German. And he took himself to the UK and uh, started reporting on what he was seeing in the UK in the build-up towards the Second World War. And he became a war correspondent. He became a war correspondent and covered the Vietnam War from North Vietnam, covered the Korean War from North Korea. He was the first man into Hiroshima after the bomb dropped and wrote his article for the London Press, which was bannered, this is a warning to the world. He was declared an enemy by ASIO, had his passport stolen and uh, was thought to be an agent of influence for the Soviet government and then the North Korean government and then the uh, North Vietnamese government. He was refused access to the United States. He was banned from ever being there. However, Henry Kissinger organised a flight for him to go to to Washington to have breakfast with Kissinger when they were trying to find a way of extricating themselves from the Vietnam War. Uh, Burchett had a very simple message to Henry Kissinger. He said, Mr. Secretary of State, the United States must fuck off. <laughs> uh, well, that, that's, that's all. Yeah. Um, so what interests me about him is that he may well have been, and Robert Mann argues, and I agree with him, that he was a an agent for various 
governments that were not aligned with the United States or the Western powers. I agree with that. But he was on the right side of history, and that's what makes him interesting. When America went into Iraq, it was immediately on the wrong side of history and has been so ever since. I, I couldn't agree more. I, th I think it's the key decision of the 21st century. And um, and yeah. there's a there's actually talking about good podcasts. There's one that Slate put out. It's a slow burn series. It's called Slow Burn, and the fifth series of that is on the lead up to the Iraq War, and and it goes through in you know in, in six or eight hours of of information just what went on, and just to have it presented like that, living through it is one thing, but to have it presented like that you can understand what an injustice it was and, and what a you know what, what an act of deceit yes mm. yeah, and uh, yeah and yeah. and certainly your speech seems to be on the right side of history in in, in that sense mm. and what about today are you are you feeling positive the, i guess there's a there's fun in the speech but there's also a, a sense that the media is under a lot of pressure and, and and is failing us how do you feel now do you feel better or worse oh, look I, I i think i feel i think i feel worse uh, tony because um people can now uh, access whatever media that reinforces their own prejudice never in my lifetime did i imagine that that facts would be challenged you can say whatever you like now and the problem is compounded with the lack of attention span that an issue can uh, can appear be really serious and by the end of the day we've moved on mm. so facts are challenged there's no agreement on what facts are and whatever that that's the case we're just going to have a very confused and a society where People are set against each other so much more easily now than than ever before. So, so I think I think the the West in particular, the United States in particular, I think is in enormous trouble. Uh, I I fear that there will be what I would call an asymmetrical civil war, which would be devastating. I think for for the planet, mm. absolutely devastating. And I don't know what to do to stop it. If there's no agreement on what a fact is, then what hope have we got? Mm. And what about the speech itself? You stood on the stage, delivered it. Do you remember your feelings about the delivery, the response of the audience? What happened on the night? Oh, look, I thought I, I got out of there pretty quickly, Tony, uh, I must admit, uh, after, after it. I, I did have a, a good chat to uh, the late Richard Carlton, who, as soon as the speech was over, I, I walked down into the uh, into the crowd. He he came up to me and put his hands on my shoulders and said, "What do you want us to do?" <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. All I could say was, "We'll get it right." Anyway, and, seven, uh, and seventeen years on, I'm harassing you about the speech. Has, has it had a life? Have you had people come up to you and say it was a thing they enjoyed, or, or quote it to you, or has it been used anywhere? No, not to my knowledge, Tony. I, 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 when when you came out of the woodwork, interested in it, it's the uh, I don't think anyone said anything to me about it uh, at all. To be to be frank, it sort of came and disappeared like 
Helen Coons did, like Lachlan Murdoch's did, like they all do. They sink. Well, you're my astrophysicist of the type that you described in the speech. It's been a big thrill to have you on. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased. So thank you so much for giving me the time, John. Absolute pleasure, Tony. Look, thanks for your interest, mate, and, and good luck with the podcast. It's, it's a brilliant idea. Thank you. What a great chat. What a nice and accommodating man. I mentioned it at the top, but I do have a website that sells books, TonyWilsonAuthor.com. New website, actually. And if you're listening to this episode, you might be a fan of sporting satire. And I wrote an award-winning Australian sporting satire back in 2005, the year of this speech. It's called Players, and it's a piss take on the world of footy shows. The footy show was big at the time, and mine is an invented footy show at war with another footy show for ratings and notoriety. There's a 50-something Playboy ex-footballer who headbutts a homeless guy on page one of the book, and it all goes downhill from there. So if you're interested in players, I've got a couple of boxes and they are for sale through the website, TonyWilsonAuthor.com. I won the Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Australian Novelist Award. Well, I shared it in 2006. Guess who I shared it with? Marcus Zusak, the book thief. I had a look on Wikipedia, and I think I've been outsold by Marcus Zusak by 21 million copies. <laughs> And that's rounding down. Speech of the week. This is the bit where we play the speech that we've talked about. And today, played a little bit of this at the outset, but it is, of course, the Andrew Ollie lecture from 2005, delivered by the great John Doyle. What a privilege it is to speak on this occasion. If for no other reason than to uh, be able to drag out the club buggery suit. <laughs> this one last saw the light of day in 1997. It still fits, oddly enough. It was, uh, it was during the bombing of Baghdad <laughs> that I reeled in shock, awe and disbelief when I saw Fox News coverage. Two immaculately uh, dressed presenters were genuinely excited by the pictures they were seeing. One of them shouted, I want to see the Moab, <laughs> the mother of all bombs. <laughs> Bring on the Moab. And I thought, it's come to this. <laughs> the news had degenerated into watching people wank at a snuff film. They were the new type of journalists. The fact is, rarely has there been a more important time for truth in journalism. I should begin by putting my journalistic credentials on the table. I have none. <laughs> As a radio presenter, I once managed to conduct quite a long interview with John Howard, who was then a shadow minister in the Downer Shadow Cabinet. <laughs> 
and covered a lot of ground without extracting any indication one way or the other that a leader cha leader leadership challenge was on. Which, uh, whichever corner I tried to box him into, he deftly changed from a solid to a gas, only to reappear. <laughs> Only to reappear as something that seemed solid on another part of the canvas. <laughs> with me clumsily smoting the air. Within a few days, he was opposition leader. Within 12 months or so, prime minister. And, on paper, the most successful one in living memory. As a television presenter, I had quite a productive, if unfocused interview with the then deputy prime minister, Tim Fisher in which we extensively canvassed his future and the future of the National Party. Within an hour of finishing the interview, he announced his resignation in the past. <laughs> it was nothing to do with the interview. It's clear that while we were talking, he knew what, was, what he was going to do, but all I could wheedle out of him was that it was steady as she goes. <laughs> Again, a no contest. Uh, in short, I've been thrashed by both champions and plotters. <laughs> and the boxing metaphor is apt. The media is charged with aggression. Newspapers, battle newspapers, radio stations spit at each other, and the television networks hate each other's guts. And journalists joust with politicians and journalists claw at each other and politicians even on the same side of the street do likewise. It's a cold, cold-hearted world out there. Look at the way Mark Latham treated his Labour family. Look at the way the Liberal family treated John Brogdon. To state a truism, politicians and journalists need each other, feed each other and form marriages of convenience. I remember working with a high-profile journalist on a commercial network a few years ago who stated that his ambition was to work as Peter Costello's press secretary when he assumes the prime ministership. His newspaper column has been nothing but full of praise for the treasurer ever since. <laughs> as a means of preparation for tonight, I, uh, I had another look at some really engaging lectures delivered on pre previous occasions in this forum by some pretty heavy hitters in the industry, and there have been some outstanding insights into the media. Kerry Stokes talked of the need for different voices, different perspectives and diversity of opinion, and how vital this was for the health of the media and therefore the health of democracy itself. I noticed that this year has seen sevens to day to night and nines a current affair put to air the same story at the same time on the same night. <laughs> as nearly as I can tell, the programs are the same. Same old foot in the same old door philosophy, same mock outrage at feuding neighbours and a total dependence on losers or sad losers or violent losers or losers ripped off by shonky gold-toothed rat-type losers. <laughs> They now make the ABC's brilliant 90s fast front line look less like parody and more like reality television. <laughs> Both current affairs shows depict a world where it's not only not safe for anyone to leave their home, it's not safe to live. <laughs> and the commercial news services are carbon copies of each other as well. If one uses a blue background, the other will follow. If one uses a cityscape as a backdrop, the other will follow. 
testament to the superficial nature of news as news is seen in whatever happened to Jim Wiley. <laughs> Jim had been groomed to follow Brian Henderson, uh, the former host of Bandstand. <laughs> But it began to go wobbly when people started to watch Nines Ian Ross over on Seven. It was decided Jim might have been scaring the viewers a bit. So they began moving the camera back, making Jim appear smaller and therefore seemingly less scary. But then Jim was disappearing altogether and by that stage it was too late. Into Mark Ferguson, a bloke who looks about 19, who was then marketed as the man with the experience. Unlike Jim, apparently, who has, to my knowledge, been seen in the flak jacket more times than any bloke ever to read a bulletin. <laughs> so forget diversity of opinion. It's out there in the margins. If you really want diversity, go to SBS and the ABC. <laughs> then I watched Yana... Yana Vent's excellent address where she spoke candidly about the immense difficulties of providing quality popular journalism on any commercial network and she was right but in the end you can take the girl out of Mary Magdalene's world for a time but it's very hard to take the Mary Magdalene out of the girl completely <laughs> and then we had Yana Russa usher Sam Chisholm into the Logies Hall of Fame and suddenly Sam's back at nine and while middle management now have to call him Mr. Chisholm and wear suits, Ray had to lose the suit and loosen the tie in promoting a current affair. It was to give people the impression Ray had been at it all day at the coalface, tracking down the spivs, the plastic surgeons and the weight loss miracles. <laughs> the fact is, as Lachlan Murdoch pointed out in his address here, the media is a business, and if going low sells, then let's mine really low. <laughs> Lachlan's remarkable thesis seemed to be that elite opinion is to be avoided at all cost. What is preferred is opinion that fuels nationalism, and profits made serve to improve the systems of delivery of information to consumers, colour printing and the like. What's overlooked is that in the end, delivery and delivery systems are meaningless. Content is all that matters. Rubbish is still rubbish, be it on an old 21-inch black-and-white HMV or in high definition through the digital set-top box. The Beatles and the Stones <laughs> sounded pretty good through the crystal set attached to the iron frame of my bed as a ten-year-old. <laughs> as for elites, well, it's best to encourage worship at the feet of sporting elites. For those who dabble in elite thought may well come to conclusions that are at odds with the prevailing wisdom within the culture of the organisation. And while on the one hand the Murdoch organisation bleats on about its abhorrence of political correctness and the need to enshrine freedom of speech and opinion, on the other, when dealing with China, is quite sanguine about removing the BBC channel from its star service because the opinions expressed might upset the burghers of Beijing. But to give it its due, News Limited is digging its heels in regarding freedom of information laws and is supportive of its two journalists who are under threat of jail for not revealing their sources over a leaked government document. Maybe the time has come for a Bill of Rights. I think Yana is right, Lachlan is wrong, and Kerry seems to be living in a parallel universe. <laughs>
I come to this forum as a consumer of media and as someone who's been fortunate enough to sit a little on the, little on the inside and uh, observe aspects of how it appears to work. At my first real job at the small arms factory in Lithgow... <laughs> closed now, unfortunately. <laughs> I bought the Daily Mirror every afternoon on my way home. I used to savour the football and cricket think pieces from the likes of Phil Tresseter and Ian Heads and Jeff Prenter, and they brought me up to speed with the notion of cliché. At the time, I had no idea that this would be my career-making preparation, <laughs> allowing me to express moments of life in terms of a traditional softening-up period, forwards stamping their authority on the match, players having either good hands or quick hands or both, being able to sell a dummy or sell a dump or both, being able to bundle people into touch with either a grass cutter or ball and all tackle, while second rowers hunted in packs or made busts up the middle, or the hard yards before creating something out of nothing and being able to score from anywhere on the paddock while you could throw a blanket over the defence. <laughs> Players could have the ball on a string in a moment of individual brilliance or weave their magic in a desperate bid requiring courage and commitment in the trenches in a game played in two halves where both teams were a credit to themselves, with one player being an ornament to humanity in a match where the game was the ultimate winner. <laughs> in 35 years, about the only new contributions are American ones. This rookie stepping up to the plate could end up a Hall of Famer at this level if he lifts the bar. <coughs> Yet despite the tightly spin-doctored, homogenised responses of sports stars and commentators, there's still the odd surprise. Ray Warren suggesting at one stage that the ball popped up like a plume of molten lava. <laughs> or Benny Elias on SBS saying, well, it's just like comparing apples and apples, you can't do it. I've always loved radio. <laughs> Mornings was Gary O'Callaghan and Sammy Sparrow until Pop meant the, uh, the two SM good guys introduced the songs that would become the diary of adolescence. Many years later, what's, what's changed? Talkback, that's all. <laughs> Commercial radio now. AM. Bandwagon talkback. Water cooler drivel as talkback thought starters. Competitions, finance and weather, quizzes, traffic, more talkback than an inflammatory lunatic with talkback. <laughs> FM. Wacky clubs or crews. Old music or a balance of old music with unthreatening new. Competitions, requests, racy talkback with swearing and repetition. All programs are substantially written by the daily newspapers. Breakfast and mornings used to have a deal. Breakfast got the stories on the odd pages and mornings got the ones on the evening pages. <laughs> the quirky stories are good for the crews. Often they're survey-based. Four out of every ten Swedes prefer briefs to boxes. <laughs> Come on, guys, what do you prefer? Give us a call. G'day, Brian. Love your show. I wear briefs, mate. <laughs> the crew might ask blokes who freebagged a phone in. <laughs> One of the crew will have an insight. 
I always free bag in my trackies. You're wearing your trackies now. Bloody hell. <laughs> Much hilarity, and that becomes a promo soundbite for the next month. <laughs> and don't be scared to use the Melbourne chuckle. That's when everything is so funny, you can hardly speak with laughter. Sadly, I've only caught John Burgess on radio once. The grab I heard was, and we're coming up to the bottom of the hour, so let's just ease our way through with a little Anne Murray. Perfect. Least forgivable is the program that begins with, why don't you just give me a call and tell me what's on your mind? <laughs> it's dead air space with a host. <laughs> As our TV shows like the Up Late Game Show on 10, which may be telling us what TV will be like down the track when the digital revolution gives us thousands of channels, all with nothing on them. <laughs> For some reason or other, as an immediate response when first approached to speak at this occasion, I wrote down the word symmetry. This is the 10th Andrew Wally lecture. Uh, like many, I can remember where I was and what I was up to when the shockingly sad news arrived. I last saw Andrew in the canteen at Gore Hill at lunchtime on a Thursday. We chatted in the sandwich queue. Not long before, he'd worked on a Four Corners special entitled What's Wrong with the Liberal Party? a program that ended with Andrew angrily railing at the panel of John Howard, Robert Hill and John Moore for being in denial. I talked about work, his work, and he wanted to talk about anything but work. He looked and was exhausted. He was doing mornings on 7.02 and the 7.30 report at night. He had every reason to be exhausted. Andrew was very generous to me when we were working at the same station. He always offered story ideas, wry observations, and encouragement. I did afternoons, and it was the only time of day, apart from midnight to dawn, when nobody seems to or seemed to give a bugger about what you did. <laughs> there was no minute-by-minute -minute scrutiny that breakfast in particular has to endure. One of the traps with radio is that it caresses the ego in the most dangerous manner imaginable. The first skill to leave is the ability to listen. When someone else is speaking, you're automatically forming your next thought. The long-term effect must be a specific type of narcissistic madness. The trade-in part is about finding a performance mask that can be slipped on and can evenly disguise days of euphoria or despair. Andrew was helped on radio because we knew what he looked like. He had a natural elegance and an interesting mask that really exposed itself on television. He had a look of almost permanent scepticism brought about by the asymmetry of his face. Science tells us we're attracted to symmetry. Symmetry equals beauty equals biological, biological success, so the argument goes. Yet there was Andrew, a sort of walking proof that the exception can also be true. I'd see him annually at the New South Wales Tennis Open at White City. Here he uh, presented as a sort of Watto Bertie Wooster type. <laughs> with attractive slacks and lemon sweater casually draped across the shoulder with a picnic basket in the boot of the Audi parked on the lawn courtside. 
Yet in the background was this tearaway kitty from Queensland who terrorised neighbourhoods and missed out on jail by the skin of his teeth. His mask of performance had obliterated this part of his life completely, as nearly as I could tell. But I never had a night on the tiles with Andrew, and I suspect a few good reds might have allowed a different spiritual genie out of the bottle, as is the case with many journalists. <laughs> journalists like a drink. <laughs> Often to excess, it's an occupational health hazard. Robert Hawke became a regular commentator on my show. He had tremendous style and a mission to find truth. There were days when Horpty would have had a long lunch, and then it was different. A rosy, warm smile can make for difficult radio. <laughs> then he learned Russian and went to Russia as a correspondent because he thought that's where it was all going to happen, and he was right. Many at a time at awards dues, I've gaped in awe as highly respected journos who've slammed yet another one back and bayed at the moon or thrown a glass in anger or picked a fight. At the Walkleys, fistfights are part of the card. <laughs> I suspect drink in the journalist's culture might have something to do with massive overexposure to the darker side of human nature. I've always enjoyed reasoned commentators. I loved the sturdy assuredness of Paul Murphy and now Mark Colvin. I lean forward when I hear Catherine McGrath or Fran Kelly in attack mode. I love Kerry O'Brien getting angry. I pull up a chair for any Chris Masters or Sally Neighbour Four Corners special. I flick the page to the Paul McGough article. It's the mixture of gravitas and style. As a family in the late 50s, we used to sit around the uh, lounge room at night letting Arch McCurdy guide us through Benny Golson or Oscar Peterson or Charlie Parker. A cigarette company sponsored him. It might have been Ardeth. <laughs> And with a voice, with voice alone, he fashioned the smoky atmosphere of a New York jazz club. His live commercials for Ardeth had him ignoring the copy, and the ad would sometimes be reduced to a pause, followed by the sound of a match being struck, and an ecstatic draw. <laughs> and that was it. Arch always struck a warm yet authoritative tone. He was a master of the medium, having the easy confidence of one who's made the time the moment his own and he knew his subject and somehow gave the impression of having left the ego behind. John Cleary has a similarly elegant style. Andrew also, despite his particular asymmetry, had reasoned objective balance, which leads us to opinion. Suddenly the world is awash with opinion. Sadly, more Arch Tambacus than Arch McCurdy. <laughs> Newspapers, too, are full of it. Any half-baked dickhead who can string a few sentences together is given a go, particularly if the opinion is inflammatory or somehow ratchets up the climate of fear or loathing, simply and obviously because it sells more newspapers. When I had a regular radio show, I was constantly astounded by the easy access to some of the great minds of our time. It seemed to me that radio had such portability and potential that there was no excuse just to throw the lines open. I had an American physicist called George Smoot on once. He helped discover cosmic background radiation, the echo of the Big Bang, the microwave image of which was given the title The Face of God. We pick it up as snow on our television sets. And he was talking about string theorists 
whose maths had rewound the tape of time to escape this universe and seriously postulate that the Big Bang was caused by a collision of two other universes in a cataclysmic event. He said the maths was pretty good. I thought, fair enough. <laughs> Certainly the idea of other universes seemed redolent with possibility. Then I spoke with another American physicist, Robert Kirshner, who shrugged and said that in the end, a mathematical formula must have elegance to have truth. And to his mind, st string theory still lacked elegance. And I've wondered in wonder about elegance in this context ever since. <laughs> to me, the doctrinally unencumbered search for the big picture answers of where we came from, where we're going and how we might survive as a species are far more interesting, intriguing and satisfying and more revealing of truth than faith-based examinations that are shoe-proof and lessen us as humans. While the echoes of the Big Bang provide the clues, the echoes of the Age of Enlightenment are remind us that we are but the stuff of stars. I remember reading some years ago about the series Dallas being beamed into the New Guinea Highlands. <laughs> it was being viewed by mountain tribal people who were just a generation removed from first contact people who'd had little or no connection with European society at all, apart from the odd Christian missionary. <laughs> Tim Flannery recalls seeing a burial service in the Highlands whereby the deceased was picked up and swung over the grave with the family and onlookers solemnly chanting the incantation in the name of the Father and of the Son and into the Holy Ghost. <laughs> What were they to make of Dallas? <laughs> a highly camp-style, vacuous, rich oil family living the right life of Riley in a bed-hopping, fun-filled, soap-operatic adventure laced with stylized irony. <laughs> Probably the Highlanders saw it differently. <laughs> a lifestyle that was heaven on earth, irresistible. Vast houses, huge cars, heated pools, money, booze, guns and loose women and no morality to speak of. Ancient and modern cultural universes brushing against each other. Again, a cataclysmic event. The truth is that in the belly of any society there's a violent, brutal core that exposes itself when the thin veneer of culture is stripped away. The recent hurricane Katrina in the Gulf of Mexico partially revealed the feral world that snuggled so closely within the first world. And there are websites that explain that the shape of the hurricane was that of a womb and that while ever the US continues to allow abortion, God will rain such punishments down. <laughs> Without doubt, there are other websites that suggest the shape is that of a bumhole <laughs> and is a warning against the legalization of gay marriage. <laughs> and others suggesting this is simply Gaia attacking the oil industry. <laughs> the fact is, New Orleans has been known to be a disaster waiting to happen for decades. Being in denial about global warming is to court certain disaster. And Tokyo is a disaster waiting to happen. The earthquake is already 250,000 years overdue, if the geologists are to be believed. <laughs> 
Welcome to the age of infinite information. Small cataclysmic events are happening all the time at the speed of light. The internet allows anyone anywhere to access information that might be true, might be false, but you can find whatever information you need to prosecute any argument you want. Conspiracy theories abound. History can be written any way you wish. In the past, information bound culture. There was a shared sense of a gradually expanding library of sensible and responsible scholarship, whereas now information is serving more to fracture culture. The future of information is with bloggers. And who knows what the blogging implications might be of a generation aching for the steely coldness of Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and other games involving cyber murder or cyber torture and online sex and anonymous chat rooms and bomb-making instructions and clubs dedicated to nihilism and terrorism and all manner of misguided madnesses designed to accelerate rapture. The genie of limitless spin and unlimited market power has been unleashed. The result is to squeeze the commercial lemon shamelessly with a never-ending stream of services offered that come with a tacit irresistible message of the promise of the good life. And somehow people spending 150% of what they earn makes for a robust economy. And there's the, then there's the promise of globalisation, which has still done little for the Asian sweatshop worker being paid 50 cents an hour to build the shoes for the golfer who's being paid 50 million a year to wear. Never before have we been aware of just how obscene has become the remuneration amongst our top company executives. Five to ten million a year seems to be unexceptional, whether successful or not. And nobody bats an eyelid. We're becoming a nation of acquisitors, special interest, real estate and the stock market. Changi and Marking Time were written as companion pieces examining the Australian character. The sweet and sour journey towards the hardening of its heart. It's fitting that we're now exporting our homegrown Aussie version of Christianity to Europe that comes with the powerful message that Jesus wants us all to be millionaires. Paul Keating commented almost as an afterthought that without reconciliation, we're just here for the view. <laughs> Speaking of which, it's amazing to think that reconciliation was so recently a part of mainstream public debate. Mention reconciliation now and there's a generation of Australians who haven't the least idea of what you're talking about. If it doesn't affect the economy, it's not on the radar. The economy is everywhere. Paul Keating made it pop. He was so successful at it that Peter Costello has modelled his parliamentary performance mask entirely on Paul Keating's. He is walking proof that imitation is the highest form of flattery. God almighty, the economy... It's assumed that everyone is now a shareholder. Everyone has a portfolio, many with those T2 shares just sitting there as a reminder of <laughs> how close to gambling the stock market really is. <laughs> but it is a source of celebrities. There's always someone from Comsec bobbing up in an audition piece on Channel 10's news, <laughs> or Karen Cho on Nine, or Alan Kohler on the ABC. And when it's budget time, Bill Evans or Saul Eslake they're as predictable as Phil Koberberg appearing when the temperature reaches 34 degrees in summer.
Then there's Koshi, who bears all the hallmarks of one having loomed out of the dismal science. Religion, too, has again become a source of celebrity. Archbishop George Pell is probably at the top of the tree, with the Jensen's jockeying for position now. Peter Carnley has exited stage left, and the Reverend Dr Gordon Moyes has become almost invisible. But bobbing up on the inside is Sheikh Al-Hilali, who came out of nowhere during the Doug Wood incident. Well, almost out of nowhere. There was an incident involving an unregistered vehicle and an unlicensed driver and some plumbing supplies that were protruding precariously from one of the windows. I don't know what the upshot was. I really don't. But the Mufti and Kaiser Trad have become Australia's Islamic odd couple. And if they... uh, if they seem a little like rabbits caught in the spotlight or appear to be treading on eggshells with their speech, bear in mind how difficult it is for anyone in the Muslim community to put their heads up in 21st century Australia. And the media doesn't help when it depicts, quite falsely, Australian youths of Arabic background supposedly claiming an unwillingness to ever integrate. Mercifully, some media does attempt to reveal truth, And if it wasn't for the excellent work done by Lateline this year with the ABC Investigations Unit, I doubt whether the Rao or Salon cases would have appeared at all on the radar. Let alone the exposing of what has been described as an overarching cultural problem within Dimia. And I think it's fair to say that in days gone by, in our Westminster system, Any minister who oversaw such a rancid cultural climate within a department would have been expected without question as a minimum requirement to fall on his or her sword. It's not always so great for a society when God turns up. Reason is often the first thing jettisoned. Evolution is back on the agenda in the United States, which means here as well. Creationists what want they want uh, what they're calling intelligent design incorporated into the curriculum, and it's meant to be treated seriously. But it doesn't surprise me. Battles won in the past are having to be won again. And as long as within the media elite opinion is reviled, untested populist positions will prevail. I can only imagine what the cost was of the burning of Constantine's great library in Alexandria. So much knowledge of astronomy and maths and all manner of literature, history and art, universal truths that had to lie dormant until rediscovery by another purple patch of human intellectual endeavour. The sadness of today is that the truths are still with us, sitting side by side with uninformed nonsense. Do we need to revisit through individual work contracts the factory life of Dickens for collective bargaining to grow again? And while ever the media allows truth to be bended, more old battles are going to have to be re-won. Humans are not related to chimp. Astrology has answers. There's no connection between Iraq and the increase in terrorism. The earth is flat. The Holocaust never happened. To be born in poverty is your own fault. A society is safer when human rights are compromised. There's no such thing as greenhouse gases. Certain races are not as intelligent as others. And now there's terrorism. Will it become common, a sort of angry graffiti? It's complicated. 
the same political figures who today kiss the helm of Nelson Mandela in a time not so long ago were happy to see him rot forever on Robben Island. Saddam Hussein was the friend of the West and armed by the West in the war against Iran. Somalia and now Zimbabwe can go to hell in a handbasket because their lack of resources has no effect on the West. And there's the overarching issue of sustainability. To imagine that everyone on the planet can aspire to the lifestyle of J.R. Ewing at the cost of the global environment and the resources of other nations is to live in a fool's paradise. Arm poverty and ignorance with moral rectitude and hang on to your hats. We live in interesting times. If commercial radio is so slight because it's under-resourced, so too is television. And if more channels are allowed, then the resources will be even further stretched. As it is, the ABC has been cut to the marrow and can no longer afford to do much drama. And commercial networks have decided drama is too flaky and expensive. Meanwhile, our very fine drama schools are pumping out scores of new young actors each year and there's nothing for them to do. The lucky ones might get to appear in a uh, beefeater barbecue commercial or survive for a season in the Bell Shakespeare Company. So our local content is reduced to game shows, dancing shows, lifestyle shows and talent quests, all creaking under the weight of diminishing returns. Think of something mindless, rope in a couple of celebrities and there's your show. Big Brother is such a waste of an opportunity. The housemates live in a state of perpetual boredom unless they're pissed. <laughs> Why not engage them? A house of really smart, gifted young people from various fields. Scientists, engineers, mathematicians, builders, a Latin scholar, a poet, etc. And they have a problem to solve. With a shared incentive of a few million dollars, they have to find a solution to Australia's water problems in ten weeks. <laughs> There's a show. To get on my hobby horse just for a moment. <laughs> because historically the ABC has been the powerhouse for new ideas that are often taken up by the commercial networks, perhaps the time has come for those networks to subsidise the ABC. <laughs> After all, the ABC has been the training and testing ground for the commercial networks for 50 years. It's about time the situation was redressed. <laughs> What I would propose is a tax-deductible levy on pre-tax network profit of around 25 to 30%. <laughs> That's pooled exclusively for ABC drama. In return, the networks get second viewing rights and the right to franchise any series on a rotating basis that is deemed commercially viable. The fact is, it's only the ABC, by virtue of being unencumbered by what is popular, that is capable of taking risks. Why is there such a paucity of great locally made drama? Because the ABC isn't doing it. The Americans would hate such a plan and see it as not being in the spirit of the free trade agreement, but so what? This isn't cheese or rice we're talking about, it actually is culture. A fully funded ABC drama unit would be to the advantage of the commercial networks. The ABC could become Australia's HBO. So what's changed in the ten years since Andrew left us? A conservative Labor government has been replaced by a conservative coalition government and the organisation he worked for, the ABC, has had to steer through some pretty treacherous waters. 
ABC News and Current Affairs has somehow survived the Shire era and the petty ideologically driven hounding by former Minister for Communications Richard Alston. The ABC still provides the best services in the country, the best news services in the country, and arguably services that could be described as being amongst the best in the world. Radio National is still impossibly excellent. ABC TV has too somehow managed to survive with its current affairs programs intact, loathed by Labour and Coalition alike as it should be. <laughs> and as it should be, it still strives to put forward an alternative view. So that when the commercial media is dictated to by myopic, intrusive ownership and ill-informed populism, is forced through thoughtless need to make irresponsible programs that lack both style and substance, caresses inflammatory and cheap, nasty demagoguery that seeks to marginalise the already marginalised, that describes the world in simple terms, provides simple answers to complex problems, and is purely a servant to fiscal outcomes, then the ABC will always seem to aggravate, annoy and frustrate. And it's precisely when the ABC is doing this that it is serving its charter. It's preserving its sceptical, asymmetrical mask. Andrew missed out on seeing the events of September the 11th. A blunt cleaver that questioned Western certainty. One of the pilots of the first American Airlines plane to smash into the World Trade Center was Mohammed Atta. He spent his last hours on this earth in Las Vegas, roaming amongst the gambling dens and strip clubs, theoretically to further Steely's resolve such was his loathing of the excesses of the West. The quest for our media is to ask why it happened and why it's continuing to happen, to understand the motivations of those who are willing to end their lives at a young age on the altar of sectarian anger, to join the dots between that state of mind and the mindset of those in the New Guinea highlands, cutting down their pristine forests to feed the generators that provide the power for the television to screen Buffy or The O.C. or Joe Millionaire, or if they're online, to power the modem to any cyber freak show the, mou the mouse takes them. If this examination isn't exacting and truthful and without fear or favour, then this universe's accidental experiment with self-awareness and consciousness may well have been a total waste of time. Thank you. that's it end of the episode a somber and contemplative end of the speech to round out with and thank you john doyle for coming on it was a real pleasure and do get his book blessed a year in the life of rampaging roy slaven his life as a 15 year old in lithgow in 1967 a great memoir and you can hear about that on the conversations podcast if you want to hear about me and speak Ola, you can go to the conversations podcast as well the speech collector was my episode recorded during lockdown two in 2020 
Thank you so much to our sponsor, the podcast reader, podread.org. And if you mail them at hello at podread.org, you will get a free PDF of issue five. Get hooked on podcasts on the page as much as you hooked on them in the headphones. I'm going to be aiming for fortnightly episodes as I did last year. Sometimes they're every three weeks, but that's the aim. And if you want to help me get there and even help make the episodes a little more regular, you can become a member slash supporter slash Patreon subscriber, patreon.com forward slash speakola. The audio of the Andrew Ollie lecture is courtesy of the ABC. Do a couple of segments of the ABC. ABC Brisbane every Friday at 1.45 Brisbane time. And in Melbourne, I'm every second Thursday morning at 6.45 Melbourne time with Sammy J. So you can tune in, get your speakola fill there. And that's it. It's wonderful to be back. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Mm -hmm.